Worshiping the Lord is a commitment, and our commitments are ones of faith. We worship God in that way and pleases Him. We as a church family at this time of the year talk about our faith and what we believe God wants us to do by faith as a part of this ministry in the following year. Now for those of you who are visiting with us, we are glad you're here, but we want you to feel no embarrassment or uh, feelings of compulsion as we spend these next few minutes as a church family talking about our faith promise commitment. This is our second week of this, and we have already, many of us, indicated our faith promises, but a good number have not, and this is an opportunity to do it. I'm going to ask our ushers to pass out, or make available at least, to those of you who would like one of the faith promise forms, uh, those forms for you to use. Uh, If you are on our church mailing list, you should have gotten a letter from our elders this last week containing one of the forms, so you may not need one this morning. That's fine. If you'd like one, just lift your hand right now as they work their way down the aisles. All of us who count ourselves as a part of the Grace Church Roseville family share the joys and the burdens of the ministry, and of course, there are always both. One of the joys of our ministry together is that of giving. I know some of you thought I would say one of the burdens is that of giving, but indeed that's not the case. Giving is a joy. Giving is a privilege that God gives to us. We are partners in the ministry of this local church. When I was a young boy about six years of age, my father was still working with a team of horses on our farm in Kansas. I remember Babe and Bess very well. Those were the two horses. Now, many of you have not had the privilege of seeing horses work, but uh, it's quite a, a sight to watch them pull in tandem, doing their work, sharing the load. I remember seeing them come out of the barn early in the morning, get hitched up with all of the paraphernalia they had to wear, and then go out into the field and come back after a long, hard day's work, sweaty and needing to be rubbed down and then being put back in the barn for their rest. Well, there's a sense in which we are a team like that together in this ministry. We all pull together so that we can carry our share of the load of ministry. Our faith promise is our way of indicating what we prayerfully believe that God wants us to do in 1987. Please keep in mind that a faith promise is between you as an individual or you and your family and God. It indicates on your part a step of faith linked with sacrifice. As David said, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And so we want to challenge ourselves to give beyond the comfort zone to the point of it costing us, of being sacrificed in our giving. 
But then to go beyond that, to take that step of faith in which we are trusting God to meet our needs. It is important for each of us to do this and to indicate in advance what we're planning to do. That too, by the way, is biblical. The Apostle Paul said that we should purpose in our hearts what we intend to give. As we indicate together what we plan to do in the next year, it enables our leadership to do adequate planning. These forms that we turn in are later destroyed. Uh, These are not pledges in the sense that someone later contacts you if your giving is not up to that amount and says, this much is yet due. This is between you and the Lord. But we do ask you to complete the form and to turn in the top copy, the white copy, so that we can uh, calculate it. I'm going to ask you to pray with me before we complete the forms this morning. And by the way, if you filled one out last week, do not fill out one this week unless you intend to increase it and then only put down the amount you intend to increase. Uh, Do not duplicate what you said last week. Let's pray together the ownership prayer as is found in our worship folder. This is a familiar prayer to those of us who have been saying it for the last several weeks as a part of our fall spiritual adventure. Before we complete the forms, and I'm going to ask you to do that once we have prayed, and then you can fold that white piece that you're turning in and put it in the offering plate in a few moments. Now let's bow together and let's pray this prayer as a congregation, the ownership prayer. Your Majesty, thank you for what you have entrusted to me to manage on your behalf. These possessions, these resources, these gifts are not mine but yours. Give me the wisdom I need to make them available for the work of your kingdom. I am honored to be your subject. Amen. I tried to live 
when living in your will I find the peace sublime so for now and for all time I'll keep my eyes on you give me the sight to always see you to want to please you give me the strength to do your bidding Lord it is fitting that I live my life for you for you I'll keep my eyes on you when I see from where I've come I trip and fall but I know that your love will guide me through it all Lord I don't know why I tried to think my life was a throwaway when you me so much that you chose to pay so as I live from day to day I'll keep my eyes on Thank you, Lisa, for reminding us what should be the attitude of all of us today. As we receive the offering, may I remind our visitors to place your cards in the plates, and also the faith promise slips should go in the plates as we collect the offering today. Let's bow together. Lord, today we need to turn our eyes upon you as much as ever before in our lives and to focus upon the grace that you desire to make real in our experience. Lord, I pray that you will open the floodgates in our lives, remove the obstacles, the hindrances, and work powerfully in us and prove yourself as the faithful God that you are, where we can see you in our daily lives, as well as in the ministry of our church. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's continue singing together. Hymn number 16, How Great Thou Art. We're going to sing all four stanzas. We'll sing the fourth verse a cappella, and then the instruments will join us on the chorus. Number 16, How Great Thou Art. Let's stand, please, as we sing together.
I shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home. What joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. Let's open our Bibles today to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. The title of the message today is Where the Rubber Meets the Road. And I think the title will make itself clear as we work through the first part of the message. The text we mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. We'll read it and then quickly depart therefrom. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is not denying his own deity here. He is simply probing this man to see if he really understands who Jesus is attempting to lead him to understand that he in fact is God and that good is appropriate when speaking to Jesus. He goes on to say, You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And I think the man was sincere in saying that, but he was measuring himself externally. This was an external righteousness, not heart righteousness. He was measuring himself as did the scribes and Pharisees. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus put his finger into the heart of this young man, took him beyond the external measurements he was using so that he might see his real heart need. And by the way, Jesus was not saying that by doing this, he would inherit eternal life. Eternal life comes by faith and, as it says here, come, follow me. But Jesus wanted to remove the obstacle first. Before he could follow Jesus, he had to get rid of the covetousness of his heart. But at these words his face fell, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. 
And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking upon them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we examine your scripture, the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and would speak to us and would expose whatever there needs to be exposed in our lives that we might come and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was struck last Sunday by Robertson McQuilkin's remark about the all-American commandment. You remember that? Thou shalt covet, he said, using 1 Corinthians 12.31 as his tongue-in-cheek proof text. I smiled at his humor, but at the same time, perhaps like you, winced at the sharpness of his point. Covetousness is a temptation that every one of us faces, especially in this culture with its materialistic values. We, all of us, struggle daily with this green-eyed monster, and sadly, often not very successfully. You see, we are wonderfully gifted at creating rationales for our own selfish accumulation of personal wealth. By the way, the greatest wealth that any people have known in the history of the world. We give at the office. We hand out at the door. We pledge to charity. We put something in the offering plate at church. And then, of course, we conclude that we've done our fair share for others and that we can now lavish the remainder on our own pleasurable lifestyles, or perhaps save it up to secure for ourselves a comfortable future. We reason that we are not the ones who are wealthy. We are not rich. After all, there are others around us who have much more than we have. Why, we're only middle class. Beloved, I'm convinced that our attitude toward our money and our earthly possessions however much they may be or however little, that that is where the rubber meets the road as far as our spiritual confession is concerned. That's the real test of what we are spiritually. Have you carefully, prayerfully considered the stewardship of your money and your possessions? Perhaps the ownership prayer has struck a sensitive nerve in your heart as it has mine over the last few weeks. One cannot pray those words for several weeks without his heart having a dramatic impact being made. By the way, those words are ones that you may wish to keep in a more permanent form. We're making available to you today a beautiful 
printing suitable for framing of the words of the ownership prayer. Uh, Before we distribute them broadly, what I'd like to do is offer them to those of you who have sought to incorporate that discipline of praying this prayer in this fall spiritual adventure. Now, you may not have prayed it every day as you had hoped or intended to do, but if this has been a discipline that you've sought to keep over these last weeks, there's a free copy for you up here in the front and also in some tables in the back. Uh, I'd like for you to take this, and maybe you'd want to put it in your office or your home uh, as a reminder of the ownership prayer that God has indelibly written upon your heart during these days. We'd like to start by offering them one to a family, and then if we have some left over, we can offer perhaps two to a family, in case you want to put one in your office and in your home. Have you considered, though, the items that are mentioned in this prayer? It says, these possessions, these resources, these gifts are not mine but yours. What do those words mean? What are we talking about when we talk about our possessions? Well, let me suggest that it refers to all that we own. It's talking about our home, our land, the car, our stereo, our wardrobe and adornments, the collectibles, even the guest room we have in our homes. Those are our possessions. There are others that we could name. What do we mean when we talk about our resources? Well, it includes our bank accounts, our safe deposit boxes, inheritances, insurance, investments, influence. Yes, our influence. That too is a resource that God has given us. When we talk about our gifts being the Lord's, what's in mind? Well, let's say that it includes our skills, the talents God has given us, our spiritual gifts, children, friendships, whatever physical attributes God may have given us. Our gifts include our creativity and certainly the time that we have. You see, by nature, we tend to grasp, to hang on to all of these things. And that's the real heart of the issue, isn't it? All of us struggle with the idea of ownership. Whose are these things? We have yet to realize, perhaps, that none of these things really is ours at all. They are all our kings. And we then are expected to use them, to manage them. They are entrusted to us not for our own selfish use, but for his use, his purposes. He wants us to make them available, as it says in that prayer, for the work of his kingdom. That's why we have them. When Jesus comes to visit, we are reminded to see our things through his eyes. Now, of course, Jesus was there before our fall adventure, and he is going to be in our homes after the fall adventure is over. But there is a sense in which we have emphasized his presence in our homes during these days. He cannot be there with that special emphasis without our having to see our possessions, our resources, our gifts through his eyes to whom they really belong. 
Now, there are people who object to this kind of thinking. For example, there are some who might say, what right does Jesus Christ have to my money, possessions, and gifts? What right does he have? That may sound a little strong, perhaps even on the border of blasphemy, but might it not reflect the real attitude of our hearts at times? What right does Jesus Christ have to these things that are mine, we ask? Well, let me suggest that he has rights to them. In the first place, he created all things. And so these things that we call ours are actually his by right of creation. As the Apostle said in Colossians 1.16, By him were all things made. And so anything that you and I possess during our brief time in this world is actually his by right of creation. He made all things. Secondly, I would suggest that he has rights to them because he endowed all of these things to us. They are his by right of prepossession. Before they were ours, they were his. He has given them to us for this brief span that we call life. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the fourth chapter and seventh verse of the first letter, what do you have that you did not receive? Good question. John the Baptist knew this. He is recorded in the Gospel of John, the third chapter, 27th verse. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. And James echoes the same theme in the first chapter and 17th verse of his letter, when he says, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. What right does Jesus Christ have to these things? Every right, because they are his by right of prepossession. And thirdly, I would suggest to you that they are his by right of redemption. For you see, he bought us with his own precious blood. The Apostle Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians 6.19 and says, You are not your own. You have been purchased with a price. If you today claim to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord then you are saying by that that you have been purchased or ransomed from your lostness, your sin, to belong to him. That ransom price has purchased you and me so that we're no longer our own. What right does Jesus Christ have to these things? Our money, our possessions, our gifts, they are his by right of creation. They are his by right of prepossession. They are his by right of redemption. Turn with me into the Old Testament to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. We're going to see that this was a truth that David recognized. This is part of David's prayer after gathering the materials necessary for the construction of the future temple. 
Notice it says in verse 9, Then the people rejoiced, because they had offered so willingly, for they made their offering to the Lord. Isn't that a great thought? They had received a great offering. David gave first, then the leadership, and then all the people gave. And the result was so generous, so abundant, that they all rejoiced because they had given their offering to the Lord. It's good for us to remember that as we bring our gifts to the Lord and we put them in the plate, that we are not giving our gifts to the church primarily or to the missionaries primarily, Rather, we are giving them to the Lord to be used in the advancement of his kingdom. And notice it goes on to say in the next phrase, they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart. They held nothing back. And King David also rejoiced greatly. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, here's his prayer, Blessed art thou, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Thine is the dominion, O Lord. And thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from thee. And thou dost rule over all. And in thy hand is power and might. And it lies in thy hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from thee, and from thy hand we have given thee. You see, David recognizes that as they brought this generous offering, they were only returning to the Lord what he first had given to them. It was his by right. He was the owner. And that certainly is not Old Testament doctrine merely. But then someone may object by saying, don't I have the privilege to enjoy the things God has given to me? Doesn't it say in the Bible somewhere that he's given us all things richly to enjoy? Amen. Indeed it does. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6.17 But God has not given us those things for us to live luxuriantly and pander our greed. You see, the key to that verse is what enjoy means. Given us all things richly to enjoy. What does it mean to enjoy all of these things that God has richly given to us? Well, let me suggest in the first place it means to have one's needs met. Including, by the way, the need for pleasure. God has created us so that we need pleasure. Now, when pleasure becomes our chief end, when it becomes our God, then that is sin. But understand that one of our basic human needs is pleasure, and God gives us all things richly to enjoy for our needs to be met. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What things? Food, clothing, place to live. 
What does it mean to enjoy them? It means to have your needs met. It's a joy, isn't it, to see God meet your needs. I think, secondly, to enjoy means to be able to give to those who are needy. He's given us all things richly to enjoy. One of the greatest ways to enjoy what God has given to us is to give it. To give it away. I talked to a man this last week whose father is in the position to be able to give a college in another state, and he did, a million dollars. Why? It's a great joy to him to give. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. So God has given us all these things to enjoy by giving to those who have need. And thirdly, we enjoy our things by investing them wisely in the Lord's work. Turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Jesus here tells a parable that has left a lot of people puzzled. I wish we had time to go into it, but actually it was preached to us a year and a half ago by Robert Smith when he preached here and delivered a great message on this text. So I'm not going to take time to do it this morning. If we want to enjoy the things God has given to us, it means that we will invest them so that we can rejoice one day in heaven with those who have been won to Christ by our wise use of the Lord's money. Notice in verse 9, as Jesus summarizes the story about the shrewd steward, he says, And I say to you, here's the conclusion, here's the application. Make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness. That is another phrase for money or the things that we have. That when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Isn't that a strange thing, so it seems, for Jesus to say? Not at all. Jesus is saying to us that we need to be shrewd, wise, that is, in the use of our earthly resources. He's saying that we need to use it in such a way as to make friends who will be able to welcome us into heaven when life has failed, when it's over. The idea is that as we invest in the Lord's work, people that we've even not met are one to Jesus Christ. As God's work is advanced in other parts of the world, as well as here. And one day when we get to heaven, we will for the first time be able to see what the investment of our money has met. Those friends will welcome us in the eternal habitations They will say, welcome, I am here because of your investment in the Lord's kingdom down there on the earth. That's what Jesus is saying. To enjoy the things that God gives to us. One is very wise to invest it in the work of the Lord because then you see, one is investing in heaven. And one gets eternal pleasure from it and not merely passing pleasure. Well, someone says, what has the use of my money got to do with spiritual things? After all, the two aren't even related. Ah, how wrong that is. Indeed, notice Jesus' words in verses 11 and 12. If therefore you have not been faithful, excuse me, back up to verse 
10. He who is faithful in very little, a very little thing, is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? You see, what our Lord is saying here is that one's faithfulness in the use of his money is a direct indication of his fitness for spiritual things. That may surprise some of you, but that is the teaching of Jesus Christ. Now that does not mean that those who have a lot of money are therefore naturally qualified for spiritual responsibility. It really has nothing to do with the amount that one has. The point is, how does one use what he has? Jesus says if a man knows how to use these little things, if he's faithful in these unimportant little things, then he can be given the eternal things, the true things, the spiritual responsibilities, can be trusted with them. I was never taught as a young person anything about giving beyond the fact that I should put something in the offering plate. And I usually did put something in the offering plate. Even through my college years, I rationalized that I was a poor college student and therefore, and I was going to a Christian college and giving my money to them, so wasn't that supporting the Lord's work? I mean, there are all kinds of rationales you can come up with. It wasn't really until I was out of college and had gone down to Covington, Kentucky, in my first ministry, that God taught me a lesson about this. And it came in a rather pointed way. Pastor Wearsby, under whom I worked for those two years while he was there, said to me, now, Pastor Call, we were very formal in those days, now, Pastor Call, you will, of course, tithe your salary so that you can set a good example for the Lord's people in our church. I'm sure he didn't hear me suck in my breath or swallow hard, but that was the first time in my life I had ever been really confronted with the concept of tithing. And uh, obviously I began tithing. It was not exactly of free will at first. I felt some coercion in it. But it wasn't long before I began to see the joy in giving more than just a nickel or a dime. Our family has continued the practice of at least tithing through the years. There have been times we did not know how ends were going to meet. No, we are not wealthy because we've tithed. No, we cannot do all the things we would like to do. But I want to say this to you as a testimony on the part of our family, that we have found God to faithfully meet our needs and even more as we've been faithful in giving. You say, well, then do you believe that tithing is a legal requirement for this age? No, I do not believe that. Now, I know that there are some who do, and that's fine. I'm not going to argue with them. We all have the right to be wrong, including me. 
I'm not going to argue that point. But I do believe this. That if I, in this age of grace, with all of the privileges that I have in Jesus Christ, give less than what a Jew did in the Old Testament under law, then somewhere I'm missing something. I've overlooked something. Something's not functioning in my life very well. I believe that tithing is not a legalistic requirement, but it's a good goal to start with. And which one should then pass up in his giving? As one learns to be faithful in these things, God then entrusts spiritual responsibilities and opportunities. You see, the use of our money and what we do with that has direct bearing upon our spiritual opportunities. The two do go together. Now, I know that there are those who tell you that if you tithe, you're going to be prosperous and you're going to be wealthy. In fact, I have had material come to me that has said, if I will send my money to a certain place in Oklahoma, that when I send it, I will have it doubled my money back within a month. Well, that simply isn't true. But I have found this in, in our experience as a family, that when I have been faithful to God in giving, that God has always made the remainder go further. Now, some of you are shaking your heads. You know what I'm talking about. If one is faithful in his giving to God, and by that I mean giving the first fruits, not the leftovers, but up front, giving the first fruits. Giving to God what is purposed in the heart. Giving to God that sacrifice, that step of faith. That if one is faithful in doing that, God will see that the needs are cared for, and even more. But someone says, can I have the best of both worlds? I'll serve God, but I also want to retain the right to my money. Well, look in verse 13. Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Our Lord says it's impossible for us to have two authorities in our life. One or the other must dominate by the very nature of things. He is saying that God will not share the throne of our lives with money. No, we can't have the best of both worlds. That's impossible. By the way, Jesus is not here condemning wealth. Please understand that. Indeed, it is the Lord who gives power to get wealth. He is not condemning wealth, but he is condemning making wealth one's God. He is condemning serving money instead of using money to serve God. That's what he's dealing with. This may come as a surprise to some of you, but I believe this, that the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ, when the life's work of every believer will be examined for its worth in serving the Lord, the King, in his kingdom here in the world, when we stand before him on that day as those redeemed by his precious blood and we give account of ourselves, I believe 
that our financial records will be subpoenaed as evidence. Our heavenly guest for these weeks is gracious and lowly of heart, but remember that he is also the master. He is the king, the sovereign, to whom we owe not only our loyalty and allegiance, but who has the right of control to everything that we have. Let me suggest a project for you, your family, if you're married, sometime during this upcoming week. Let me encourage you to take a walk through your home. Go through each room of your home with your guest, the Lord Jesus. Ask him what he thinks of this room and that. And dedicate the contents of that room to him, recognizing his right of ownership. Do you dare do that? David Maines, who is the director of the Chapel of the Air, has written some helpful words regarding this. He says, walk through your home and say aloud to Christ, this is your living room, your majesty. Are you pleased with the way it's being used on your behalf? Is there anything you would change? Then pause and give him opportunity to speak in the quiet, to put thoughts in your mind. Then continue the process. This is your kitchen. This is your garage. This is your guest room, and so on. Maybe he will use, or rather speak, words of affirmation regarding the way his resources are being used. He might challenge you to explore new means of service. Possibly, he will ask you to remove certain items that do not please him. Walk with him through all that belongs to him. Don't skip anything he wants to see. Tell the Lord that above everything else, you want him to see you as trustworthy regarding these resources. Quilkin called it the all-American commandment. If there's any commandment that's made to be broken, it's that one, at least in the context of what we've talked about today. I quote again from David Maines when he says, At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asked this question, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I tell you? Even today, the cause of our Master is stymied on many fronts, because servants hold their master's resources in tight fists. Stewards have forgotten whose name is on the possessions they manage. What am I saying today on this sixth Sunday of our fall spiritual adventure? Here's the summation. Don't view what you have as basically yours. Rather, do view all that you have as through Christ's eyes. Let's pray together. With our heads bowed and our eyes shut, and as the Lord brings to his own point and his own summation what he wants to say to each of us, what is it that you need to say to him today? Will you take a moment right now to speak to Jesus?
Will you open your clenched fist, if that's the case, and say, Jesus, what is in my hand has your name on it? Give me the wisdom I need to make it available for the work of your kingdom. Lord Jesus, we are reminded that it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. We have been pointedly reminded this morning that we are indeed stewards and not owners. I pray that we will live like it and give like it. I pray that you will work this grace into our lives. that we might be generous and joyful as we enjoy the things that you have given to us so richly. Amen. We're going to sing in closing a hymn that you might not recognize. It's number 435. We will sing only the first two verses of the hymn. And since the tune may be new, while you're seated there, I'm going to ask Patsy to play it through once for us. 435. Let's stand together as we sing. We give thee but thine own, whatever gift may be, all that we have is thine alone, I trust, O Lord, from thee. May we thy bounties bless. As stewards true receive, and gladly as thou blessest us, to thee our first fruits give. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that in light of Jesus' soon coming, and the certainty that we shall stand before him, each one of us, and give account of ourselves. May we then live this week in such a way that we are faithful stewards. So that when we stand before Jesus, and all of the records are opened, and we are accordingly rewarded, we may hear from his lips those coveted words, Well done. Thou good and faithful steward. In his name I pray, amen. We're dismissed.